This episode is brought to you by Simply Test for MPS, a no-cost enzyme panel test from Biomarin. Could MPS be hiding in your practice? Diverse presentations of MPS can complicate patient identification, and missed or delayed diagnoses are not uncommon. Simply Test for MPS streamlines MPS diagnosis for your eligible patients. Visit simplytestforMPS.com slash NSGC to request a no-cost testing kit today. From the National Society of Genetic Counselors, this is the NSGC podcast series. Exploring stories of leading voices and best practices in genetic counseling. Now to your host, Kate Wilson. Welcome to the second episode of the NSGC podcast series. I'm your host, Kate Wilson, and today we're taking a deep dive into the positions genetic counselors have in the healthcare system to advocate for patients impacted by genomic medicine. Join us as my co-host, Kalita Leaquat, sits down with Chief Strategy Officer for Genetic Alliance, Natasha Bonham. Genetic counselors are really good at listening to um, the families that are in front of them and honing in on what their needs are that can then be taken and say, okay, this need is actually needed at a systems level. And Rebecca Davis, the former International Registry Coordinator and Data Network Specialist for the Phelan McDermott Syndrome Foundation. Your, your voice and your expertise is really so valuable and, and just you know, remember that these organizations are made up primarily of patients or their family members, and they care so very, very deeply about this. Take it away, Kalita. I'm sitting down with Natasha Banam. She is the Chief Strategy Officer for Genetic Alliance, a not-for-profit organization whose mission is to engage individuals, families, and communities to transform health. For the past seven years, she has overseen maternal and child health for the organization under their Expecting Health initiative, with a particular focus on bringing the family's perspectives into policy setting around screening and diagnosis and maternal and child health overall. Thank you so much for being here with me today, Natasha. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited for this discussion. So you've been with Genetic Alliance quite some time and they have a long history in advocacy. Can you tell me, you know, just a little bit more about your work with Genetic Alliance and the type of advocacy you do in your role? Absolutely. As you said, Genetic Alliance has a very long history of doing advocacy work and raising awareness, really through the perspective of bringing the family, community, and individual voice into the healthcare discussion, both on the policy side and also on the programmatic. My work has really been a nice reflection of that in terms of being able to do programmatic work in terms of implementing different projects at the community level around a range of different topics, including family health history, newborn screening, prenatal testing, and also just general access to care and treatment. And then from an advocacy perspective, I've really been able to work both at a more local and national level in terms of looking at different policies that are being put into place through national organizations and seeing what actually ends up happening at the clinic level. And then also looking at more of a legislative or federal level 
in seeing what are the types of laws that are being passed. And one of the first things I worked on when I joined Genetic Alliance was the Genetic Information Non-Discrimination Act, GINA, which really helped shape my view of how important it is to have a range of different people um, be involved in in making policy change and advocating for what's needed at the local level. And you noted a couple of things that I found really interesting. So from your perspective, um, given that that you sit kind of at the nexus of all of these intersecting um, spheres of influence within genetics, what skills have you seen in genetic counselors that kind of make them uniquely positioned um, to be patient advocates and their role in, in this complex structure that you're describing? Yes, I think that the skills that genetic counselors bring are really solid and important when we're talking about advocacy and um, whether from a policy perspective or even from a more uh, legal legislative perspective. The genetic counselors are great at pulling together a lot of different complex pieces of information and distilling it into what is most important and what is most needed. I think also the fact that genetic counselors are really good listeners um, and that is what is often the key to success in advocacy, but also is sometimes missing, <laughs> is actually sitting and listening and hearing what are the true needs, not just the highlights of what's kind of the title of a, of a particular bill or the title of a policy, but really honing in on, okay, what's really needed in this moment? What is the foundation we want to build? And then how do we build upon that? Uh, genetic counselors obviously do that when they're working with their um, with different families and with individuals trying to assess, okay, where's the starting off point for this individual? And then how do I build onto that to um, address their needs and concerns? It's really the same thing at a larger level when you're thinking about policy changes or um, anything that you would be advocating for. And so I think the fact that genetic counselors are really good at listening to um, the families that are in front of them and honing in on what their needs are, that can then be taken and say, okay, this need is actually needed at a systems level, whether it's access to care or access to testing or access to uh, treatments. Um, you know, I think that's a skill set that is actually pretty easy to then take out of the clinic and then into more of an um, advocacy role. Do you find that there are sufficient genetic counselors involved in advocacy at this time? Have you seen a trend or are, are there more uh, what are what are your thoughts on that? You know, it's hard to compare anything to when we were trying to push uh, Gina through because mm -hmm. that just involved everyone. Uh, you know, uh, it was kind of the bill that uh, everyone could kind of see a role for themselves and see what um, what would be the benefit of that passing. So I think that genetic counselors are involved in a couple of different places that may be a little more under the radar. Um, again, it's hard to get more on the radar than Gina, but um, whether that is working with a particular advocacy organization around a particular um, health condition or working uh, through you know, the work of an SGC and looking at, like you brought up, licensure, I think that there's definitely still space for genetic counselors to be involved and to be involved in a range of different ways. Again, whether that is advocating for issues that really um, primarily affect genetic counselors and then would have more of a ripple effect out, 
or working with advocacy organizations who are pushing their own um, perspectives in terms of, again, typically it's around access to testing or coverage. Uh, sometimes it's uh, something a little bit more um, specific depending on the particular conditions. Um, I think there's space at all levels for that, for genetic counselors to become involved and to both hear what those partners and stakeholders may need, but also to really think about what are the skill sets that you bring or that you feel like you've honed in, again, whether that's in the clinic or in your day-to-day work that you think, hmm, I wonder how this could apply um, to a broader issue. Tell me your thoughts about advocacy in the genetic space um, and, and the future landscape. You know, how do you see, how do you see this evolving so the, the future of advocacy and genetics in particular, um, and then future roles that genetic counselors could take within that landscape. Because we talk about, we've talked about uh, genetic counselors getting involved in particular organizations, even with Genetic Alliance, but, but what, what, is, what is your prediction for the future? <laughs> oh, that multi-million dollar question, right? <laughs> yep. uh, well, there are probably a couple of different components to that. One, just the face of advocacy, if you're looking at it from the advocacy organization perspective, is really changing and evolving. Uh, you know, we see people are coming together in ways through social media, through online discussions, more and more, uh, and and sometimes there's the question of, okay, so then what is the value of a brick and mortar advocacy organization in that infrastructure? And that's something that, you know, you can um, talk about that from all different points on that spectrum. But that's one thing that when people are thinking about, uh, you know, coming together around a particular topic, and if that topic is a particular condition, uh, to really be evaluating and to know that there are lots of different places where people are discussing any number of different conditions. So, you know, you have your online communities, you have your again, more brick and mortar communities, and then you have things all in the middle. And I lay that out because then that also provides a range of different opportunities for uh, genetic counselors to become involved. You know, if you're thinking of something that's more online, you've seen some groups who have, you know, a genetic counselor or two who help kind of guide the conversation um, in terms of being able to answer questions that may come up and connect people to more national or broader resources, but aren't necessarily um, driving the discussion there. And then you also have genetic counselors who are working even more closely with more of the brick and mortar advocacy organizations to help really talk about, okay, what does the uh, policy landscape look like that they're trying to influence and how, when does it make sense to bring in that genetics expertise in the room at the same time as you're bringing the family experience and the expertise of families of actually going through that system and seeing um, how care is received, how um, answers are or questions are answered or not answered and going through that. So I think in terms of the future for advocacy, there's a lot of potential. I think there's a lot that, you know, in five years, things will look probably different than they look today. And that's really exciting because that also provides opportunities that maybe weren't there five years ago in terms of how people can get involved and have more of a, even more of an informal way of engaging, uh, which tends to lead to more flexibility. And sometimes it can be even more impactful because people can really tailor what they're bringing to a discussion based off of their skills, their experience, and what they want to get out of it. And that's both for genetic counselors as well as the counterpart. Again, whether that's a fully formed, very official uh, 
advocacy organization or a group of people who are just looking to make a difference in their community. What do you think are unique challenges, you know, our respective fields face in advocacy? Because you have experience with, you know, child health, women's health, but also with genetics and genetic counselors. So what do you think are unique challenges that um, the genetics field within healthcare faces with regards to advocacy? Sure. So one of the key pieces is the fact that genetics is becoming so integrated and um, mainstream into healthcare, particularly if you're looking at maternal and child health and even more so if you're looking at, let's say, the prenatal period, uh, there still is this push to say, yes, this is the way we should go, and yes, there still needs to be expertise around these topics brought into the discussion. Uh, so the number of conversations that are happening now around things that are genetics or genomics related that actually um, people who are in that profession aren't involved in, I think is actually growing. There are more discussions online about what type of genetic test should I get? Um, will my doctor offer it? What about my insurance that are happening in so many different pockets? And people may not even be saying, oh, I'm thinking about having a genetic test. They're just saying, I'm thinking of getting screened for this or doing this type of testing. How should I go about it? So again, I think while that's a challenge in the fact that because it's becoming so integrated and so mainstream, it can be thought of, a, oh, this is just something we do. It's fine. No need for additional expertise or perspectives. I think that is a place that we could really use more of that genetics expertise, particularly that that of which genetic counselors bring, which is not just understanding of a condition or a test, but then also the ability to have those fuller discussions around, and what does this mean for your life? Because that's really what people want. And for us to think about from an advocacy perspective, how do we advocate for that? Um, how do we advocate for more access to, again, not just testing, but really that whole, um, that whole package of testing, follow-up, and care that genetic counselors really um, obviously know so much about. I think that is really a great barrier, but also a really great opportunity because that is what people are looking for. It isn't about, the test is just the way to get there. People really want to know, how do I learn about my health and then be able to make uh, informed decisions around it? And that is a prime role for genetic counselors. It sounds, too, that there's a huge opportunity for education at every level that both clinicians, um, such as genetic counselors, can do, but also advocacy groups or maybe an intersection where there's a partnership to help educate, you know, whether it be those clinicians that you're mentioning that are now part of the genetics world and might not realize it, or patients who are thinking about getting screened for disease and not realizing that that's a genetic test. Absolutely. And you said it exactly right, that there's the opportunity for education at every level. And again, that is why the partnership between an advocacy organization and a genetic counselor could be really helpful to really have both come together and kind of track that process and to say, oh, wow, here are the places that we wish we could replicate for all of our um, either members or anyone who's going through any type of um, testing or looking to see if they have a particular condition. Or I think that's also a place where things are changing. So much of genetics has been around, um, you know, 
you have symptoms and we're trying to find out what's happening. And now we really are in a space where genetics is a tool, just like many other things, just to see how things are going. And that's a slightly different approach. But I think genetic counselors are really um, primed to be able to work in that space, as well as to partner with advocacy organizations that um, and I would say advocacy organizations and more broader consumer health organizations who aren't coming at it from a particular condition, but really just mapping how people interact with the healthcare space themselves. So there's a lot of opportunity there for um, mutual education and mutual learning from, um, from all angles. I almost feel like I need a visual map of all of these spaces <laughs> so I can focus on one area versus the next because I, I just see opportunities everywhere based on what you're saying. And that's really both inspiring and exciting because the future is bright, not only for genetics, but uh, for genetic counselors um, and advocacy. Yeah, I agree. I think a visual would be very helpful. And it could be a nice little map if someone is thinking, hmm, I really want to be doing more in my community, yet don't really know even what that means to look at something and to say, oh, yes, this is the space. I want to help uh, a condition-specific advocacy organization really see how they better partner with clinicians. Because even that, that takes advocacy. Um, advocacy isn't just on a national level. It isn't just about going up to Capitol Hill and testifying or discussing with um, staffers there. That's one type of advocacy that's really important. But advocacy also happens at the local level. And I think that's really important for people to know that it doesn't have to be this whole big unattainable thing. It's something that can be, you know, right in your backyard, right in your community. Absolutely. Natasha, thank you so much for spending time with us today to chat about this. Oh, absolutely. This was really lovely and happy to discuss further. Interested in learning more about Genetic Alliance? Head online to www.geneticalliance.org. Next up, I'm sitting down with Rebecca Davis. Rebecca Davis is a certified genetic counselor who worked for the Phelan McDermott Syndrome Foundation starting in 2014 as their international registries registry coordinator and as their data network specialist. Rebecca, welcome to the podcast and thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. So I feel like there's so much to unpack here with this conversation with you. So let's start at the top. Tell me a little bit about your work at the Phelan McDermott Syndrome Registry. Of course. So I was hired in 2014 as the data network specialist as part of a uh, PCORI funded clinical research networking project. So the Patient-Centered Outcomes Research Institute provided funding for a patient-powered research network that was able to link the data that was collected through the registry with knowledge from clinical records that was extracted through a natural language processing system and with genetic data. And so my initial role was to come in and help on that particular project. But that actually was able to give me the opportunity to act in a larger registry coordinator role for the, the umbrella, which was the International Registry. And I was able to do a lot more of the day-to-day -day management and operations of the registry, work with our families and the community on resources that they needed, as well as work with our PI and the other team members on oversight and governance of the registry. Tell me what you found surprising about this role at the registry. 
I think when I first started at the registry, I didn't have a full appreciation for the amount of work that needed to be done. And I mean that in a, in a completely positive sense in that there are so many impactful and interesting and important projects that the community needed to get off the ground or needed to have continued. And I think that from a personal and professional standpoint, it meant that there was a wide range of projects and tasks that I had the opportunity to work on. There was never a dull moment. I was kept really interested in the work. Uh, But it also meant that for the community, there was a huge need for support and a huge need for resources and advocacy across a lot of different categories. So uh, making sure the the community was being connected with one another and the emotional support was there, especially for newly diagnosed families. Uh, There were informational resources that were needed, shifting research priorities, et cetera, that I think I didn't have a full appreciation for just the, the never ending work that came along with the job and with working with a rare disease community for a disease specific organization. Um, There's just always amazing things that need to be done and that you want to jump in and get your hands dirty and constantly be starting all of these new projects. But of course there's always limitations on time and funding and so on. And so I think I was very surprised at the breadth of, of opportunity there. Um, and the the opportunity to to really get intimately involved with this particular community. Now, were you the first genetic counselor at the registry? Yes, I was. Okay. And since that time, they've been able to. So I came on as a consultant uh, in a very part time capacity. And since that time, they've actually been able to hire a full time registry coordinator, which is a huge and important step for the organization. And like I said, there's so much work to be done. They really needed to someone to be able to come on full time. Um, and so that new registry coordinator is also a genetic counselor and is their second genetic counselor on the team. It sounds as though you wore different hats, even within the two titles that you had. Can you tell me um, what kind of genetic counseling skills do you think you use the most? Um, and how did that influence your work at the registry? Sure. So I think that a lot of what we're taught in school has to do with communication with patient and families, how to get complex information across in an understandable way, um, while also having a real expertise and technical knowledge of genetic testing and of genetic disease, and always being patient and family-centric. And so I think those were really the three things that came through to me as the most important genetic counseling skills. Uh, for example, we're, we're taught to consider where a patient is in their diagnostic journey, um, understand their values, their priorities, their perspective, and use all of that as we present, present information to them or present testing options or screening recommendations and really make sure that we're framing that medical information in a way that's tailored to that person. And I think a lot of that was used in my job at the registry, or I certainly tried to use it in my job at the registry. Uh, there were the communities filled with people who have a new diagnosis of Phelan McDermott syndrome in their family member, usually their child, um, but also with people who have been part of this community and organization since it was first described. And so the needs are very different uh, depending on 
where you are in that timeline and where you're coming from, from, um, excuse me, the, the needs are very different based on where you are in that timeline. And so I think having that appreciation and understanding, but also consistently learning from the different members of the community about what they perceive their needs are or identify their needs are at those different stages, and then trying to meet that need in a way that we're not able to do in clinic. Uh, and then, of course, using the technical knowledge of testing to help the management of the registry and to help the PMSDN and make sure that, for example, the genetic data we're collecting through collecting medical records and genetic test reports is being effectively captured and completely captured based on what a clinician would need or a researcher would need and making sure that that data can be used to facilitate research. It sounds as though um, genetic counselors are really uniquely positioned, as we often say, um, to do this kind of role in advocacy. Do you think you were well prepared going in to this job or did you do a lot of learning um, and applying the skills that you had learned as a genetic counselor on the job? I think both, actually. I think I was well prepared in that the clinical perspective that I could bring to our team, I think, was very valuable. I was the only person on the team who had been a healthcare provider in a hospital, and so I think there was a lot of value in that. I also, at my previous job, had had the opportunity to work on a multidisciplinary team in a breast cancer clinic. And I think that the skills that I learned from that experience really translated to this role because we really did have a multidisciplinary team, um, both from the professional staff side and from the fact that we were working very closely with parents and caregivers of people affected by the, about, oh, excuse me, of people affected by the disease. And so there were a lot of perspectives and being able to work with uh, that kind of multidisciplinary team was really helpful. At the same time, I did I did learn a lot on the job. I had not worked an enormous amount in research before. I had been peripherally involved in some of the research going on in my clinical job, but I had not um, I had not had this level of involvement. And so, getting to learn about policy writing and governance and be more involved with the IRB was a really valuable experience. Um, and so I think I did, I did learn a lot about that as well. And certainly I had never worked in a, in a disease specific organization before or in an, in a specific advocacy role like this. I had done an internship at Genetic Alliance, which is actually how I had met some of the people on this team years previous to starting the job, but I had not. So I had a little bit of experience in that from that role as an intern. Um, but this was the first time I really was getting uh, as hands-on every day in my in my primary job um, in this role. So I certainly was able to learn a, a huge amount. Based on your experience um, and, and, and your role at the registry, what do you think are unique challenges that genetic counselors who are thinking of going into advocacy might face? So I think that there are there are two categories to to the challenges. I think the first, and I'm not sure that this is actually terribly unique, but again, there are, are so many. There's so much work to be done, and I think any genetic counselor in almost any role would identify as there's always more that I want to be doing or would be interested in doing, but 
don't necessarily have the bandwidth to do or for whatever reason. And so I think that's very, very true in this setting for an advocacy, especially in a rare disease community, because there, there really is just so much amazing, important and interesting work to be done that we can't do all of it. So many of these organizations are nonprofits and they're run on donations and on grants. Many of them are very young. They're getting their feet under them. And there's just never going to be enough time or money to do all of the amazing things you want to do. And that can be very frustrating. Um, but I think it's also very motivating and very exciting. And you really care about these communities because you're working with them every day and getting to know the patients and getting to know the parents. And so I think that's one of the challenges that I faced. Um, I tend to be a very action-oriented person. I want to I do it and I want to fix it. And so that, that was hard sometimes, but again, I think in, it, can be, it can be seen in a positive way as well in terms of being interesting and motivating. I think the other challenge from a professional standpoint is that, at least for me, this was a consulting position. And so whenever you're not in an employed, employee salaried position, there are professional benefits that are, are missing as well. So as a consultant, I had the huge advantages to be able to work from home, to be able to make my own hours, to take time off when I wanted to or needed to, but it also meant that I needed to get health insurance elsewhere. And it meant that I didn't have a employer-sponsored retirement account. And pers- professional expenses like attending NSGC or getting CEUs did fall on me personally. And so that was a trade-off, but for me, it was, it was worth it. Um, and I was able to do those things separately. But it's certainly a consideration, I think, for any genetic counselor who is considering going into an advocacy role to ask those questions uh, of the organization and see if that professional side is is a good fit. Um, I think as our roles grow and change over time in this setting, I imagine that that will change. Um, but I think for that was one thing for me that was a challenge, but in the end was absolutely worth it because I loved the the organization and because I had opportunities to to cover those things elsewhere. So it, it sounds as though more genetic counselors are finding employment um, in advocacy groups or finding consulting or volunteer positions within advocacy groups around the country. What do you think the future of GCs is in advocacy? What does that look like to you? Oh, I think that there are huge opportunities. I think we're only just beginning to see the scope of it, actually. I think that um, there's really almost no limit. I think in terms of rare disease organizations, I think that GCs make terrific registry coordinators and consultants on projects and grants, kind of working in the trenches and getting their hands dirty. I think that we also could be great Uh, advisors or serving on governing boards, even as executive directors of some of these disease nonprofits. Um, I think that, you know, there are other organizations and and groups that are working more on the policy side of advocacy, consulting on legislation, affecting patients, genetic testing, regulation, about rare disease, about data sharing and data use, about privacy. Uh, I think that these are things that are becoming more 
discussed in the in the mainstream media as well. And I think that we have a really important expertise and voice to lend to those discussions. And at the end of the day, sometimes it's policy and best practices and legislation that is going to make a huge impact on what our field looks like moving forward. And I think we have a role to play from an advocacy perspective and an expertise perspective on that. I think that genetic counselors advocate for patients every day. I mean, writing a letter of medical necessity is a form of advocating for your patient. And I think that as we, as a profession, expand more and more out within our clinical roles and outside of those clinical roles, there are really endless layers to how we can be be involved as advocates. With all of that in mind, what would you say the number one thing a practicing GC can do? You know, what do you recommend for genetic counselors who are, you know, as you mentioned, working in the trenches? Um, how can they practice patient advocacy above and beyond, say, writing a letter of medical necessity? What do you see um, those clinical folks doing that can benefit, you know, the advocacy movement in general? So speaking just from the rare disease perspective um, and the disease-specific organization perspective, I think that it's something that we all try to do anyway, which is if you have a family coming in with a new diagnosis, part of what we often prep is are there resources out there that would benefit this patient? Are there foundations or other organizations or support groups that I need to tell this patient about? And I think the problem is just, is again, coming back to bandwidth in a way that so many of us have, are, are so busy and have so much work that sometimes those things slip through. And so I think that that's actually a really important thing to just as much as you can try to try to provide those resources, even if it's a, a 15 second Google search for that uh, that that diagnosis and to see if there are any foundations or organizations representing them and, and connecting these, these patient communities. Um, and maybe it's just jotting down the name of it. Maybe it's adding it into your clinical note that gets sent to the patient. Uh, maybe it's printing out the, the homepage to hand to them so they have something to actually walk out of the office with um, for when they go home and can start looking into that organization themselves. I think that that's really, really important to make sure that any patient with a new diagnosis has the opportunity to get involved with one of these organizations because they, they often do have so many great resources for families. And, you know, I think the value of not only in clinic, but also having an organization be able to say, yes, I know what your disease is. Yes, I, I'm familiar with it. I've been through the same thing. Or I just, I don't need to Google it in front of you is incredibly valuable to families. And so I think making sure that patients have those resources is, is probably the number one thing. Um, but I also think the second, a close second would be, if you can, try to connect with these organizations yourself. Uh, learn about what they're doing. Make suggestions if there's a gap that you think would be beneficial to patients, a gap in what they're providing and what and an idea that you have or a need that you see your, your patients and your families having. Um, I, I promise you that they will be open to hearing it. Um, and it may be that that's been on their list for a long time of a project or a resource that they want to develop. But a couple of more providers or a couple of more patients saying, you know, it sure would be great if you guys were doing this might help bump it up the priority list and, and really get something really meaningful off the ground. Um, I think genetic counselors can offer to volunteer with these organizations, whether it's 
coming to a conference or being an advisor or a consultant to the organization. It doesn't have to be your full-time job. You can still reach out to them and offer your services or your opinion or, um, or just a little bit of your time. Your, your voice and your expertise is really so valuable. And, and just you know, remember that these organizations are made up primarily of patients or their family members, and they care so very, very deeply about this about and about the, the, the work that they're doing. And for them to have people like a genetic counselor come in and say, hey, I care about this too, is so important for them to hear and so important for them to, to be able to involve you in that community. So those are the, the top two things that I, I think of when, when it comes to getting involved from an advocacy world. And they're both so tangible and doable. Um, I'm writing them down as we speak. <laughs> <laughs> Rebecca, thank you so much for joining us um, for a little bit today and sharing your experience with the registry. I think that advocacy is definitely something that's on all of our minds as genetic counselors and taking that additional step to volunteer, consult, or even apply for a job at one of these advocacy groups is um, a wonderful way to use our genetic counseling skills. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. Want to learn more about Phelan McDermott syndrome? Head online to www.pmsf.org. That concludes today's episode of the NSGC podcast series. Thank you for joining us to learn all about the important and diverse positions genetic counselors have in the healthcare system to advocate for patients impacted by genomic medicine. Interested in getting more involved with patient advocacy? NSGC members can head online to nsgc.org podcasts for resources to help you get started. Have an idea for an episode? Visit us online at nsgc.org slash podcasts to submit your idea today. This recording is produced by the National Society of Genetic Counselors. I'm your host, Kate Wilson. We'll see you next time.